Filibuster received sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. If you need legal representation on employment issues, including wage and hour disputes, discrimination and harassment claims, wrongful termination, you need help with a severance package or non-compete clauses, or you just need equal employment opportunity and civil rights representation, general civil litigation, or even defamation, the Ehrlich Law Office has you covered if you are in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia. For a free consultation, head over to EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. So I was reading the Richmond Times Dispatch today, like you do. And the, the dead tree version? No, of course not. The 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 bips and boops and ones and zeros version. Hipster. I mean wouldn't, no, wouldn't it be the opposite? <laughs> Oh yeah, hipsters would read the newspaper. Right. <laughs> I, I I only say that because we still get the dead tree version of the post. The Maybe Sunday post or all of the post? Every day. Oh, I just get the Sunday. Uh, I just I barely even have like I have several stacked up that I haven't read yet, like several Outlook pages, uh, because I just don't have time to read them. Yeah, we we at least glance over the paper at breakfast every morning. It's wonderful. It's very nice. It's very old timey. Very civilized. That's that's like the definition of a hipster. No, I I wasn't doing it before it was cool. In fact, well, by definition, true. I was doing it after it was cool. No, no, that's true. But I'm not doing it ironically. I like the newspaper. I like reading that's it. Fair. That's right. So you're just a nerd. Yes, that's the word. That's the word you're looking for, nerd. But yeah, so I was reading the, the Times-Dispatch, and I was reading uh, a statement by our governor, Terry McAuliffe, and... Did you know things I learned? Hashtag, hashtag. All Maryland crabs are born in Virginia. So when you're enjoying your delicious Maryland crab cakes, just know that those crabs started in Virginia. And without and, Virginia, there would be no Maryland crabs. And wisely left for better shores. <laughs> no, they left just so they could get eaten. What else are they going to do? They're crabs. Their live, lives aren't. They're, live, yeah. No, they, they the only possibility for a crab is limited in all places. They only Virginia, go back to Maryland, Maryland and otherwise. They only go back to Maryland because the uh, the tides wash them back up into Maryland against their will. Cruel, cruel tides. And then they'd be turned delicious, whereas before they were garbage crabs. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I cannot deny Maryland style crab cakes are delicious. I can't deny it. I feel like, like there's like to say that they are Maryland style implies that the other crab cakes deserve any credit. Well, that's um, true. There, other there crab, are, I will agree. Other crab cakes are garbage. Okay, we have a weird sort of detente happening here. This, <laughs> I don't know what to make of this. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by Ben Bromley representing the Virginia crabs and Jason Anderson representing the Maryland crabs, but apparently they're all the same crabs, so I don't even know what to do anymore. We're all from desire for a life at sea. (laughs) (laughs) We're all from blackandredunited.com. That's where you can find us writing about DC United, Major League Soccer, uh, the unfortunate situation at the U.S. national team, men's national team, the wonderful situation at the women's national team, and lots more. Uh, we've got a good show for you tonight, a really good show. Uh, DC United came back from two goals down to beat the Philadelphia Union on Sunday night. We're going to talk about that. 
we're going to talk about a little post-mortem of the, the Gold Cup, and we're going to bring on uh, the original winger himself, Brian Dunsett, to talk DC United and Real Salt Lake. That, that game will happen Saturday at RFK. We'll, he'll preview it for us, and, and we'll just get it to drink with Dunny because that's what we do on the show. We drink, and Dunny will be here. We will drink with Dunny. Before we do any of that, though, let's drink with ourselves. Ben, what are you drinking tonight? So, as often happens with us on this podcast, I was constrained by my limited ingredients and had to use some ingenuity to craft a drink. And given those circumstances, I usually hearken back to old-timey drinks because they didn't have many ingredients back in the old times. So I went with a bourbon punch, a milk bourbon punch. Uh, We don't have real cow milk here in my house right now, so I used coconut milk. But it's just milk of any variety, bourbon, and a little bit of sugar. All right. That's working out for you? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Isn't, isn't, isn't that what um, Daniel Plainview uh, gave his son to help him go to sleep, essentially? Some, some milk and bourbon? Probably. Yeah. All right, Ben, don't fall asleep on us tonight. Don't go playing by oil, Derek, either. That ended pretty poorly. <laughs> uh, tonight I'm drinking uh, actually the last beer left over from my trip to South Carolina last week. Uh, it is Southbound Brewing Company's Hoplin IPA. It's from Savannah, Georgia, right across the border from South Carolina. Uh, it's a it's a good IPA. It's kind of piney, um, not in a bad way. I, I certainly enjoy it. It's not real heavy, um, but it definitely packs a, a flavorful punch. I like it a lot. Jason, what are you drinking? Well, to tie into uh, both the earlier conversation though I, this was not intended, uh, and also the nature of United's comeback, uh, I am drinking Dead Rise, uh, the only beer I know of that shows a crab on the label, um, which we've, <laughs> we've talked about numerous times on the show. At, at this point, I feel like everyone that wants to has had it, uh, and if you've been deprived somehow, if you live in some far-flung hinterland, I don't know what to tell you other than track it down. It is the beer you need for summertime. It's a wonderful also, beer, I'm not going to lie. Also... McCormick's Makers of Old Bay, please sponsor us. We beg you. <laughs> please contact us, filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We obviously accept advertising inquiries will, there. So, I, If you guys sponsor us, I will pour Old Bay on myself during every podcast that we record. <laughs> every single time. I, I, I do already. <laughs> Before this gets completely out of hand, and I believe Jason... I know Ben is lying. <laughs> Before we get any further afield, let's uh, let's get back on track here. Or I shouldn't say back on track. Let's get on track for the first time and talk about DC United, who came behind, came from behind to overcome two goals in the first four minutes and win three to two over the Philadelphia Union. Behind goals from the debutante Alvaro Sabarillo, uh, the resurgent Nick DeLeon, and the ever-present Fabiana Spindola. Um, let's start with the good here. I'm going to ignore those first four minutes. Nothing good can come from talking about them at this point. Uh, and, and let's talk about three goals against uh, an actually informed Philadelphia Union team. Jason, I know you've documented the, the run that the Union have been on of late, and scoring three goals against that team, especially when they're in defense mode after going up two. That's not a bad accomplishment. 
No, um, and we talk sometimes about game states, and when you go up two nothing in a soccer game, um, even yes, even with you know eighty five plus minutes to deal with, generally speaking, it's difficult to come back against almost anyone that's up uh, two nothing in soccer. It's just a sport with not many goals. Um, so to see United not just deal with that, um, d- to deal with that blow and psychologically stay stick with it and and keep going after the game rather than just sort of you know, throwing their hands up in frustration. Um, it took a little while. Um, it's not like after the second goal they just sprung into gear instantly. It, it took a while before they actually got going. Um, it involved a missed penalty kick on top of that, which which really, um, if if the team had less mental strength, that would have been it. The game would have ended right then and there. Um, but fortunately, United kept going. Um, we saw some some really uh, impressive stuff from when you look at the lineup that we put on the field. Um, and you see DeLeon and Korb on one side and Rolf and Kemp on the other, you've got to think that the offense is going to tilt to the left pretty heavily. And instead we saw uh, Nick DeLeon um, not just get a goal and an assist, but also involving himself in a lot of other attacking moves. I don't think Chris Korb has the game that he did without DeLeon setting him up so many times. And it's also nice to see Korb with, um, if I'm not mistaken, one left-footed cross and one right-footed cross for assists. That's right. Um, and since the knock on Korb's offense, uh, offensive production is not getting forward, it's it's what happens once he gets into those good spots. Um, it, we're not going to see him hit two crosses of that quality every week. Um, I think that's asking a little bit much. But if he's even putting one of those in per game, then uh, all of a sudden this attack gets a lot more dangerous now that there's a, a true target in the box. And um, he didn't even need to find Sabrio in the air uh, to pick him out this time. So... There was a lot to a lot a lot of good happening, maybe over the last hour of the game, I would say, um, and a lot of that had to do with the supposedly lesser players on the right side in terms of attacking uh, quality, turning the game uh, and, and really turning the game over. Um, I think without De Leon and without Corb, this game doesn't doesn't change. Maybe United scraps one in the second half at some point, but those two players really made it happen. And Corb kind of kind of owed the team a little bit after the turnover. Uh, on the first goal. So it's nice to see him bounce back from a bad moment and not just sort of go into a shell and, and kind of drift out of the game. And so he really decided I have to make up for this. I have to, you know, make a difference in this game and, and um, make some things happen. And, and for him to have the quality to do that, not just the mindset, but the quality is a, is a nice plus for, for a player that sometimes uh, struggles on that end of things. Yeah. You mentioned Nick DeLeon and I don't think, anyone on the field was better than he was in the last hour of the game. Um, and, and maybe even more than that, he was, I know Ben, he was your player uh, of the game for the first half of that one. And, and I spoiled it in the comments uh, on a post earlier today saying that he was my man of the match for the whole game. He, he was good on the ball. He made good decisions. The end product was there. He made the players around him better. He came away with a goal and assist. And if, an uh, in, inadvertent ball-to-hand deflection hadn't happened. Uh, he might have had two goals in this one. It was it was a great performance for for Nicky, and it's been a long time coming. His first goal in over a year. Um, who else do you think stood out on the good side in this game? I mean, obviously, I want to take take a little a little time and just sing Nicky's praises. He had a great game, uh, and. 
it, uh, a game that we've been looking at, we as us and we as fans in general have been waiting for him to put together for a long time now, and it was great to see. Uh, other other people who had good games, um, Perry Kitchen had a good game. Uh, I think I think in the first half he had a 100% pass completion rate. Yeah, and he misplaced a single pass in the entire game. Yeah, and so. and that includes um I I think I was reading that uh, twelve long passes, not just long balls as they kind of call them, but um switching the point of attack, things like that. He he hit all twelve of the the passes he attempted over long distance. So that's the kind of thing that we hear Will Trap getting praised for all the time. Um, and here's Perry Kitchen who is athletically athletically superior, better defensively, adding that element to his game as well. Yeah. yeah, and he also had an uncredited secondary assist on the the game winning goal. He's the guy. He his pass put Chris Corb into to space on the right for that cross into uh, the Spindola. So he could could be getting even more credit than we're giving him. Yeah, yeah. But no, he had a great game. I mean, obviously Sabario was a game changer for DC United. That's somebody they haven't had. Like they they had it briefly for with Eddie Johnson. But before that, that kind of presence they haven't had in a good long time. So it's nice to have a physical presence up front who can act, who can also score goals, as he showed with his, especially with that nifty little half volley. That was just a thing of beauty. Yeah, uh, one thing I want to say about Sabarillo as well is he was the perfect teammate. In, in one sense, he was the anti the way a lot of people thought of Eddie Johnson and the way Eddie Johnson kind of behaved on the field where he was sulking or, or kind of gesturing at teammates. Sabarillo, anything that happened, he was like, good job, teammates. Um, Taylor Kemp had an awful cross early in the game that went straight to the keeper 15 yards out of Sabarillo's reach. First thing he did is turn around and applaud, say, yeah, more of that. Chris Corb sent in the cross for, for the goal, and Sabarillo, he goes to the closest teammate to celebrate and then goes past people to get to Corb to say, yes, great cross. He was, yep. he was the consummate teammate in this game, and I, it, hopefully he, he keeps it up, and it, it's a sign that he's really happy here, and, he's gonna, and, and that's going to lead to production because that was really cool to see him just basically being what every suburban dad thinks of as as the ideal player where he's, he's one of the best players on the field, but he's going around and making – Making sure everyone is is feeling every bit as as powerful as he is, and that that was cool to see. And that, and that might um, be a product of you know the circumstances around his trade here are yeah. You know, there's talk of some sort of incident and all this other stuff that's not soccer related. Um, and, and I don't I'm not saying that I know for a fact or even a, I have never even heard a rumor or anything that he might be, you know exaggerating almost on the field to show that he's not that guy. Um, this seemed more, uh, if, 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 if that's the mindset, it, this is more of a genuine thing where he's, he's trying to make sure he fits in with his team as quickly as possible. And um, the old RSL was very well known for its team first. Um, everyone's trying to fit in. The team is the star is their, their motto. And um, this might be something carrying over from that, where he's coming from a good environment, and trying to bring that sort of same, that same sort of team spirit over to another team that's known for having a a strong locker room. You don't hear about United players uh, having much dissent or 
um, getting into trouble away from the game, things like that. So it, it's kind of a, a, a good uh, indicator for the future. Um, certainly we're going to see, um, I assume, a pretty fired up Saborio given the next opponent is RSL. Um, but uh, it, it, it's an indicator that it's not just a, oh, this was my debut, so I'm going to um, play my best. This is more of an indicator of um, I'm happy to be here and I, I'm looking forward to some success here. So all the warm and fuzzies aside, we do have to talk about those first 188 seconds where, what? yeah, I know, I know, Ben, you blocked them out, but, but these, <laughs> was, dark, was, these dark memories are going to come rushing back. I was probably uh, asleep. <laughs> in the opening, off right off the opening kickoff, um, Chris Corb makes a lazy pass to Davey Arnaud, who doesn't realize a defender's charging at him. Defender takes it off him. CJ Sapong does a nice little back heel to Chaco Maidana. Hard run into the box. Next thing you know, he's in hip-checking Steve Birnbaum to the ground. Not a foul. Sapong got to the ball first, and then he's all alone in the middle of the box. Finishes really easily. Less than three minutes later, uh, Sebastian Latou gets the ball on the Philadelphia's left side. Chris Korb stands off just a little bit too much. And Latou puts uh, a dangerous ball in on the ground that Steve Birnbaum manages to pressure CJ Sapong hard enough that Sapong just whiffs on it. But Birnbaum also doesn't make any contact, and Andrew Dykstra can't react in time, and the ball just rolls in at the far post. All of a sudden, DCU has basically done the sporting thing and spotted Philadelphia two, two goals. Obviously, it was exactly the right amount to spot them. Because United came back and won by a single goal. <laughs> ben, this is a trend now. This has been a trend this year that DC United just starts games slowly. What needs to happen for that to change? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question. I mean, it's it's a it's a mindset thing, and uh, I mean, you want to blame the coaches, obviously. The, the uh, U.S. men's national team blamed Bob Bradley when that happened to uh, his U.S. men's national uh, team teams, and uh, it's easy to blame Ben Olsen, too, but it's a more complicated question than that, and it's it's partially on the players as well. Uh, I'm I, Yeah, I'm not quite sure what you do to fix it other than what we said a lot during the 2013 season, and you don't want to hearken back to that at all, but it, it's, it's just play better soccer. I mean... Just do better. Yeah, just do better. Get get into the game earlier. I mean, it's it's cliche and trite, but, I mean, that's basically what it is. You can't take the first two minutes off uh, like the team does. And, like, that's not Steve Birnbaum's game. He's a better defender than what he showed in the first 188 seconds. He's really a fringe U.S. men's national team center back even. Yeah, his, yeah which he, he showed in the rest of the game. He won a lot of aerial duels. He made a lot of interceptions. He even stepped up into the attack at one point. He did a good right. Bobby Boswell impression. <laughs> right. And so it's just, it's just a curious thing that happens to certain teams at certain times, and it, it kind of builds as a as a narrative the more it happens. It kind of snowballs into a thing that uh, that that can't be that can't be avoided. And 
Yeah, and Ben Olsen actually he talked about it in this game. He said after this game, he said, "Yeah, it's it's happened, and this comeback was a great, you know, gut check." And um, maybe, maybe that shows maybe the character, not... but but we need the character to start games well because this isn't good enough. Yeah, and, maybe and it was not... great to hear that after a win. Yeah, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe it come. It, maybe you need Ben Olsen to blast his players a little bit publicly and you need that wherewithal to come back and actually win the game and maybe those two things combined will hopefully at least bust them out of this. Jason, anything else you want to talk about on this game before we shift our attentions to something uh, a little less happy than a come from behind <laughs> win? Um, just thinking that the the one thing that troubled me in this game, other than the start, obviously, was uh, Boswell and Burnbaum seemed a little inept with dealing with C.J. Sapong, and it, they they almost seemed surprised by how he plays. Uh, and it's not like he played differently than he ever does. Um, they just seemed a little off guard with him all game long, and it seemed like he was having a very easy time getting in scoring positions. He really could have. Uh, made it 3-2 Philadelphia right before United scored the winner. Um, so that was a little bit of a – it was a little strange to me, not just to see how the game started, but for it to continue um, sporadically into the second half even, um, where it seemed like they didn't know where his runs were going to come from. They weren't prepared for the physicality involved. Um, and that's kind of unusual. That's not like – that duo to be a little thrown off by a forward, and it's not like athletic target men don't happen in MLS very often. It's it's a pretty common occurrence. Um, obviously, Sapong is in really good form. Um, he's been scoring goals. He's been not just scoring goals, but creating opportunities uh, for the Union as well. So he is a very good player, but it still was a little bit of a letdown, um, and not the kind of letdown that United can really get away with that often. Um Fortunately, the attack uh, was prepared to make up for it, and, and certainly um, it helped that the Union, once they gave up one, seemed to sort of get confused and, and lose some confidence. Um, I thought it was very odd. I read one comment after the – or one post-game quote from um, Maurice Adu where he said at 2 nothing they just expected to get a third, and that was it. Um, I don't know where the Union would have gotten that idea from because their season has taught them that that's not what's going to happen for them. Um, they should have learned by now that it's, it's going to come the hard way if it's going to come at all. Um, and maybe that's something about what's going on with them uh, in terms of team mentality. Uh, but I think mentality is what won the game in the end, despite you know, the issues United may have had um, in central defense. This was a game that was won based on uh, not just confidence and belief, but also um, the a willingness to not let the current state of things define how the rest of the game is going to go. Um, after, like we talked about, um, United misses the penalty kick. A lot of teams in MLS would that was that would be it for them. Um, they would sort of shut up shop. They, they wouldn't give up, but they would not be effective anymore. And United actually got more effective from that moment onward. Um, and the Union, once they gave up the one, it seemed like it deflated them, and they never they never really had much of a pushback. Um, they did create the chance that went off the crossbar, and there were a few minutes there where United didn't really. They got back even, and then there was sort of a, a little bit of a lull. But I think that was more of a tired legs lull than a, um, okay, we did the job and got back even, and that's that. Um, and so this it comes back to the strength of character, which United is, is behind a lot of teams in a lot of other categories. 
Um, but in terms of team character and um, mentality and, and all the other intangibles that people, they've kind of become less trendy to talk about because you can't define them with a number. Um, you can't say that a team's ter- mentality is a 19 out of 20 um, and base it against anything. But um, I think it's pretty clear that this team has that um, as as much as anyone in MLS when the times get tough. Um, this isn't a team that folds up. It's, it's one of the reasons why... Um, the union when the union went up two nothing it was the first time all season since uh, the first game against the Red Bulls that United had been down by more than one goal to anyone. Yeah, the second um, game of the year. Right, and so that that's and it so it's happened twice all season, and that's the kind of thing. And United's had games where it feels like they're getting killed, um, but they don't tend to go behind. They tend to stick together and stick out those tough times, and then. Um, they still have the belief and the courage and, and also the, you know, the presence of mind to actually make something of those instances. So um, as much as people out there might not like it, um, and I'm not just talking about D.C. fans that don't like the aesthetics. I'm talking about you know, the national reaction to a D.C. United game is almost like it's a chore uh, in certain states. You know, certain people just don't like to watch D.C. United play. But in terms of winning soccer games, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to look over those things and just not pay attention to them. The... the, the the strength and character that the team has is, is admirable. Well, hopefully that will help keep, hopefully they, they use that character from the opening whistle next yeah, week against nice. RSL instead of waiting until they get the gut, gut punch to, to say, Oh yeah, we can, we can overcome this. Hopefully they can overcome zero zero and just go from there. <laughs> we will be right back to talk about the, end of the Gold Cup and to preview DC United's tilt with RSL this weekend with Brian Dunseth. Uh, so stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Hey, Ben, you know how you're always going on and on about legal advice on this show? Well, and yeah. Not, and you never, ever use the term correctly? Well, of course not. I try not to use the term correctly. Right. Our new sponsors, the Ehrlich Law Office, they do use the term correctly all the time. In fact, that is what they do. Oh, so if I actually wanted legal advice, I should probably go to them? Yeah, exactly. If you're in Northern Virginia or the District of Columbia, they handle employment issues, general civil litigation, defamation, lots of stuff. Uh, They have you covered. Jason, I'm sorry, they do not have you covered because you are in Maryland where they are not operating just yet. Uh, Fine. So... Ehrlich Law Office, it's, a, it's really good people. Uh, Josh is their, their main proprietor, Josh Ehrlich. Uh, he's a law school friend of mine. His, one of their, their attorneys, Ben, uh, a lot of our listeners know him from games and, and other places. So, guys, for a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Adam, Jason, and Ben here. Uh, it's time to talk about the Gold Cup, and I'm really, really sorry. Wow. If you stick through this, though, we have a good segment coming up with Brian Dunseth. It's going to be a lot of fun, I promise. Just, just, just fast forward like 15 minutes or something. Yeah, it'll be <laughs> fun. Yeah. Of course, we say all this because the USA lost to Jamaica in the semifinal and lost to Panama in the third place game, which... Nobody watched anyway, so we're not even going to talk about it. And they failed to medal in the Gold Cup for the first time since before Paul Calagiri's 
shot that sent the U.S. to the 1990 World Cup. It's been a long damn time since the U.S. did this badly in a Gold Cup. Um, it probably wasn't even called the Gold Cup then. Yeah. Yeah, Ben, this is not okay. No, it's not. And I think that, I mean, we'll probably get into Jurgen in a little bit. But oh, think... we will. We will get into Jurgen. <laughs> but I mean, that. But I, his, his deflection of this is not a big deal because it's, it's a, it, I mean, it, there are no off-year Gold Cups anymore, but because they already won the previous Gold Cup and they still have the uh, playoff in October to go to the Confederations Cup, that's not good enough. It, it's, it's the Continental Tournament. Both Gold Cups mean the exact same amount now. There's no off-year Gold Cup anymore. And, and yes, if there was, this wouldn't be it. This would be the on year. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, yes, the te- the other teams in CONCAC are getting better, and that's great, and that's good. But saying that saying that doesn't hide the fact that the United States didn't call in probably half of their best players because Jurgen just chose not to. And it doesn't excuse the fact that they lost in the semifinals. That's just patently not acceptable. Yeah, Jason, is this a, a fireball offense for Klinsman? Or should it be a fireball offense? Because this is... This is way worse than what got Bob Bradley fired. Granted, Sunil well, Gulati was hunting for a reason to fire Bob Bradley. And, and and Bradley was also coming off of some some worse results coming into that Gold Cup. Um, whereas this was the other the other side of that though is that Bradley did he just he did a good job in the Gold Cup final. His tactics were about as good as you could expect. It just Mexico scored four spectacular goals and we're play- basically playing the best soccer Mexico has put together in the last like twenty years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, Steve, and Steve Cherundolo got injured before they did any of that. Right. So yeah. so the, the circumstances are a little different. Um, should it be a fireable offense? It should be at least considerable. Um, it should be uh, something that's discussed by uh, somebody somewhere uh, that has the authority to do so. But we all know um, it's not. No. Well, I mean. Let's be clear. Klinsman is not going to get fired unless he actually goes to jail. Um, if he's if he's not on his way to jail, if he's not convicted of a crime, he's not going to be fired by U.S. Soccer. And so even then, I to, I could easily picture Claudia Reyna just holding an iPad at games with Klinsman's picture on it on Skype. Hold, it's like turn me to the left, Claudio. He turns him to the left. Turn me to the right, Claudio. This is like the um the. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that worked out very well. Um, <laughs> no, but th- the problem is that that the team is the the pool has got the pool of players has gotten better and the results have not gotten better. Um, and in this case, I mean, World Cup qualifying went about how every other qualifying attempt has gone. Um, there wasn't much difference between the last set of World Cup qualifiers and qualifying for 2010. Um, so. If the pool of players gets better and the results are the same, you already have to wonder what what the deal with that is. And if the results start to get worse, as they did in this Gold Cup, um, where the only performance that met expectations was against Haiti, which is a or, or against Cuba, which is a semi-professional team um, of guy, of guys who weren't even those guys have bigger things on their mind than the Gold Cup when they're at the Gold Cup. Um, 
So it's it's aggravating to see because you see the caliber of player that's available um, that we can afford to leave out some of the names that were left out. And but uh, we can't actually. Well, Turns well, out. No. well, the thing is, I mean, the way this Gold Cup went, as chaotic as it was, the roster was good enough to win this Gold Cup, um, even yeah. with the underperforming uh, players in multiple positions. That's, I mean, this whole Gold Cup, let's let's be honest, was a mess from start to finish. Um, even by CONCACAF standards, it was like watching multiple clown cars smash into each other at the same time. Um, yeah. Let's not but, ask Panama about the anything yeah. basically. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get a little bit into that later. But but one thing that that really throws me watching Klinsman coach teams is seeing players that that play at a high level on their clubs come in and not look good for the US. And it's not just I mean Timmy Chandler plays in the Bundesliga and then he comes to the US and he looks like a guy that might not be cut out for the NASL. Um Ventura Alvarado uh, granted doesn't actually play all that well when he plays with Cool America. He's not actually that great of a player. Um, but that's the kind of situation where you should look at it and say, well, I'm not going to gamble this continental tournament that I've spent all this time talking about how important it is on a guy that is at that level right now. Um, a team that's calling in Alan, Alan Gordon and Demarcus Beasley uh, as reinforcements shouldn't then also be gambling at well, center back with a guy that is all potential and no current ability. Um, Alan, Alan Gordon is a. I mean, he's a fine person, but that calling was ridiculous. I mean, I, I understand it on a certain level because um, you you look at the way Concacaf teams defend in the air, and you think um, if I need that ace in the hole uh, in the final or the semifinal, I'll turn to Gordon. Obviously, Gordon got his one good scoring chance. He wasted it against Jamaica, um, but. He got into that position and he won the header, but the, it's more the age that I'm, I'm concerned about. If you're going to talk about calling in your veterans and and doing it that way, that's fine. But don't then go to the one position that is more reliant on ins- experience and say I'm going to roll the dice on two youngsters because they might be good sometime down the road. And Ventura Alvarado is not as good as Steve Burnham. He's not as good as Kofi Opare. Um, quite frankly, uh, and yet there he yep. is starting for the U.S. national team. Um, and there are a lot of center backs around MLS that have to be like, what on earth do I have to do if this guy is starting ahead of me? Um, I mean, I, hashtag, I, I, are you even watching? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 we came up with just within 10 seconds, we came up with six center backs, U.S. eligible, who would be young enough to start in the next World Cup who are better than Brooks and Alvarado. Right, and, and at least... It's not been that difficult. At least with Brooks, there have been good games at the national team level to fall back on. You say, okay, he's playing badly now, but there are other instances where he's played well. Though the repeated... Uh, and I don't know if, how many people saw these, but there were repeated um, uh, stats out there showing how bad he is at winning defensive headers as compared to other players in the, the pool, like Omar Gonzalez, for example. Um, oh, oh, don't we know that? And, and that's a big concern. If you're a player of Brooks's build, uh, then and his and his ability to win attacking headers, there's no reason for you to be ba- so bad on defensive headers, except a lack of anticipation and a lack of awareness of what's going on around you. Um, but that that's only the I, like I don't want to put this all on the center backs because it's not like you can't look elsewhere and see other major problems um, from the opening the the formation against Honduras. Um, 
a diamond with two out and out wingers that are standing on the mm-hmm. touchlines, uh, that by itself is like what what made you think this was a good idea? This isn't um, FIFA. I mean, and an old in and an aging defensive midfielder just right. in there covering acres of space by himself. Right, and then you're and then you're telling Michael Bradley, oh, you're the number ten, but also um, you need to cover for all of this going on behind you. Um, so you can't actually spend any time being a creator. Um, I mean, the soccer video games that are out there would punish you for a formation like that, and they are not a reflection of reality. They are forgiving uh, by comparison. So that lineup was like, I, I, I can't see this. Like, you can play Yedlin or Zardes in a diamond uh, and maybe get away with it, but you can't get away with both at the same time. It's I'm, not going to work. I'm really scared to see what happens if you're going to continue to have this pass when Michael Bradley loses a half a step because it's going to get infinitely worse when that happens. Well, I mean, we're fortunate Luckily, that, we're still a ways away from that. Right. You know, Brad, Bradley's much yeah, younger yeah, yeah, yeah. than you think of. But, oh, yeah, of course, of course. Um, but I'm just, I, I'm just... Hopefully, Clinsey won't be anywhere near the touchline when that happens. And, mm-hmm. and, a, and a, lot of this, a lot of the team's flaws were covered over by Dempsey's uh, goal-scoring form. Mm-hmm. Um... Which is also, I mean, we shouldn't. We got outplayed by Haiti. Haiti um, getting outplayed by Honduras was irritating, but at least Honduras has a roster where you say, okay, a couple of these guys are legitimate players um, playing in big leagues or playing important roles somewhere. Um, Haiti's roster was like guys in the USL, uh, guys in the French second division, or like random clubs in far-flung Eastern European leagues. Um, it's great for Haiti that they've actually come this far where, I mean, before they were basically another team like Cuba um, playing semi-professionals as the national team. And that, that, but that, that doesn't mean that those players should be able to cause the U.S. Uh, not just momentary problems, but like problems for like 30 to 40 minute spans of time. Um, and I also couldn't help but think that every single coach that we came up against had a better plan for his players than uh, with the exception of Cuba, who once they gave up the first goal, it was like, well, that's, that's all we got. We're done here. Um, But everyone else had a better plan, um, which is not a good sign. I mean, that's a better plan is how you make up for the the talent deficiency. And that's what happened in all of the games where we played a team that was any good at all. And so now I look forward to the, the, the fall where we've got the, the first round of qualifying for the U.S. And I remember back to struggling to beat Antigua and Barbuda um, and re- needing Eddie Johnson to score in the 90th minute to win one of those games. And I see Aruba, and I think, oh, good, it, it'll be another one of those. Great. I can't wait to be aggravated for all of that time. Um, and then, it, But then it'll be like, oh, well, they got the win, so it's okay. And it's the same thing as watching the women's team um, and t- until uh, Morgan Bryan got her, uh, got her much-needed start. It's watching somebody take a group of players and fit them into roles they don't belong in. At least Jill Ellis was mostly true. I mean, she only had one or two instances where you say this player should have been in the squad instead of that player. Um, with Klinsman, it's like as Ben said, it's like eight, nine players, ten players. I mean, <laughs> the list is is way too long. So talent evaluation is a problem. In-game management's a problem. Pre-game planning is a problem. Um, other than maybe, actually, I was about to say other than maybe fitness, but then I remember all the times that Klinsman has uh, Klinsman's overtraining in uh, fitness terms has injured players because they're just like doing Steve, too much. Like Steve Birnbaum. Like any number of players, like the like the three or four guys oh, that I know, I know. in the World Cup. 
Oh yeah, um, I know. I'm just specifically. Oh yeah. Steve Burnham. Like Josie Altador or Josie Altador or Josie Altador. Right. Right. Depending well, on which year. Right. Hmm. Um, so it's it's watching the national team has become an aggravating thing rather than uh, a fun thing. Even when they win, it's it's in spite of the plan and it's in spite of what's going on. It's you're winning the game because you have comprehend like much much better players than who you're playing against, or because um, you put in someone who's really fast at the end of a friendly when the other side has put in their youth players. Well, yeah, and, and those... he, he's gotten good results in friendlies in Europe. Klinsman has, but yes. they're friendlies and they're against B sides. And well, it's not so much they're against B sides; it's that, that those teams are using the game as an experiment. Right. And in most of those games, I mean, against the Netherlands and Germany, both games involved a comeback. Um, both games involved the U.S. having to hang on for stretches of the game where they're they're just bleeding chances and giving up huge looks um, at goal. And you get the feeling that as much fun as it was, if you play the game again, the final score ends up being like 5-2 Germany or, or 4-2 Netherlands or something like that. Um, the, prog- the, the, the problem is that, is that when the U.S. does well, you get the sense that it's not repeatable. They're not putting together a process that leads to high-end results. They're putting together a, well, let's see what happens kind of thing. And, and it shouldn't be like that. And it's, it definitely shouldn't be like that in CONCACAF, where the other team is like, oh, you want to just sort of roll the dice? Great. That's perfect for us, because if we had to play up to your level, we would be screwed. I mean, we don't make teams play up to the level of the players involved. Um, and that comes back to coaching and planning and all this other and squad selection. So it just keeps being the same thing. Whenever there's a competitive game, the U.S., doesn't play well. Uh, well, I mean, I don't remember the shot totals for the tournament off the top of my head, but I know that they were similar to the World Cup in that the U.S. goal saw many shots, and the U.S. did not take many shots. And was, wasn't it like one fifty to eighty or something? One fifty. Right. To it was a large gap. It was a yeah. very large gap. And, and it's one thing with when we talk about DC United that that United tends to get outshot, um, but in most games in MLS, United is roughly even with the other team or even perhaps behind in terms of um, quality on the field. Uh, the U.S. doesn't play teams like that very They don't play – when they're playing in CONCACAF, you're not playing against someone with an even roster to you uh, or even close to an even roster to you. Uh, other than playing Mexico, every game in CONCACAF should be one where the U.S. has an overwhelming quality advantage, even with CONCACAF catching up. And so you shouldn't be like, well, look, well you know, we'll still get outshot. Um, that shouldn't happen. With this team, this team should be able to be the aggressor and win with possession and win the uh, proactive way that Klinsman talks about. It just it doesn't happen, and so part of the problem, the last part of the problem, I guess that I'll, I'll leave it at is the talk from Klinsman also doesn't match the actual thing we see in the end. No, it hasn't since the beginning. At yeah. this point, anytime Klinsman says something, I assume the opposite is is what he's actually planning. So he he said after. The loss to Panama that that in the the playoff in October against Mexico for a trip to the Confederations Cup, he's planning on bringing largely the same roster. I'm expecting 80% turnover <laughs> because he said he would be making very few changes. I expect him to make all the changes. It can't be worse. No, it can't. I one thing I will say to Klinsman's credit, he has, as Jason said, expanded the player pool. The players are better. He is right. a fantastic recruiter of dual nationals. 
Um, Kevin McCauley put together a piece on SB Nation uh, this week that was it basically at one point he lists off all the dual nationals that Klinsman's recruited, and it's a it's a strong list. There are some players you know who haven't been performing of late, Timmy Chandler, and and such. But but there are also the Fabian Johnsons, the Aaron Johansons, the John Brooks, like the guys who have you know have have made noise in the World Cup or or something. So what I want to know is is there a way to fire him as head coach and keep him on as technical director because he, as Kevin made very clear in that in in his article or his column that that is what he's good at. He's good at technical director and that should be a full-time job unto itself. He's not very good at being a manager. He's bad at it in fact. He was bad at it at at Bayern. He was bad at being a manager here. He Either we need to hire a tactician to basically take all the game-based stuff off his plate or or fire him in that role and keep him on as technical director, which he probably wouldn't go for. Right, and the other problem is he was told you know, he brought in a tactician. He brought in Andy Herzog, and before that it was Martin Vasquez. Um, the Vasquez hire was pretty widely criticized because people saw him coaching a team at Chiwash USA, and it was like, well, this guy isn't that good of a tactician. Um Andy Herzog doesn't have the background, uh, or doesn't have the background that everyone's seen because he's worked with youth teams and things like that. Um, but his the U.S. youth program hasn't done as well, and he's been a part of that. And that's not to say that all of the issues there haven't they all fall on him, but he's been a part of it. Um, and he's about and he's about to coach the uh, Olympic team into their qualifying. Right, and so far the success there hasn't been very good. Um, so there's there's a reason to wonder if um, his with Germany with um, finding uh, Yogi Lowe if that wasn't just uh, sort of like DC United signing Christian Gomez um, and then attempting to sign other players from abroad and finding it uh, a little more difficult than the first time um, where you, you you think you've got a handle on it but it turns out you really don't be, just because the first time you did it, it worked um, so yeah I. I like I said, the whole subject of the national team just is aggravating at this point. Um, All right, so let's let's shift our <laughs> attention then to Mexico's national team, who are leading an entirely charmed existence right now. Uh, no matter how much they try to lose a game, they just can't do it right now. The refs will not let them lose. They they get through the semifinals on a dubious penalty call. Mark Geiger. Uh, or actually, they get through the quarterfinals on a dubious call uh, to a to, and then Mark Geiger in the semifinal gives them uh, a phantom penalty in the dying minutes so that they can avoid a penalty shootout. It it's unreal the the luck this Mexico team has had, and you want to talk about luck. People, some people like to talk about how DC United is lucky that they keep getting results and. And this and that. No, Mexico is lucky. Mexico gets calls they don't deserve that immediately decide the game. That is luck. That is a, a coin flip in the cosmos. And and Mexico keeps winning those coin flips, and I'm really, really afraid that they are going to win this playoff in October. Ben, at this point, would you rather be a U.S. team that just can't that, – that, can see everything that's wrong, but is powerless to fix it, <laughs> or a Mexico team that has a whole lot wrong with it, but 
has been getting the results. I mean, I would always take the results. So, I because <laughs> Miguel Herrera is pretty embattled too. Well, especially with his off the field stuff that happened. Yes, punching allegedly, journalists is generally allegedly, yeah, allegedly, allegedly punching journalists is something you try not to be accused of. Right. I will say. Right. But uh, it's it's not a good situation in either regard. But when push comes to shove, as as DC United well well knows, you take the result. At least in at least in games that actually matter. Friendlies are a different beast, but in games that actually matter, you get the result. All right, yeah. Jason, I, I have to apologize to you because we're going to turn our attention back to the U.S. national team, and I know that's a frustrating Great. endeavor for you right now. But we're going to open up the Twitter box right now. Twitter box! That was nice. I like that. This is uh, a, an email to the filibuster email from a uh, reader of blackandredunited.com, regular listener and, and, and frequent writer to, to the show, Pirate Trevor, who, who asks us, this question was asked on a comments thread by someone some time ago. I thought it was worth bringing up again. The USMNT is all not great, Bob. We tend to criticize Jurgen's lineups and tactics because he's bad and should feel bad. But instead of criticizing, let's go for the positive and assume a world in which one of us or the collective of us is the manager. What in our ideal world should the 18-man roster look like and what formation and tactics should the team use given the players available? How do we get the most out of what American men's soccer can bring? Thank you, Pirate Trevor, for the email. And that is a question we could spend an entire show on. But I will say that we don't know what the best 18-man roster is at this point because Jurgen won't give us a look at what might be. We have a lot of guys we think are probably better than the guys he's bringing in and have shown better in their, their limited appearances. But it's so hard right now to narrow down an 18-man roster because it's a whole bunch of Jurgen snubs and and guys Jurgen has brought in and a bunch of potential and a bunch of aging guys. And it's it's tough right now to I I, I don't want to I, I sprung this on you guys Ben and Jason without giving you time to prepare for it. So I won't ask you to come up with a full 18-man roster on the fly. But I I think it's a little bit. It's a little bit tougher to say this is obviously the right thing, but but it's obvious to tell that Jurgen Klinsmann changing systems and throwing out a four-two-three-one in a, a Continental Cup semifinal when the team hasn't played that in six months is not the right decision, especially when you lose to Jamaica. Like coming into that game, you look at the formation, you said this is not going to go well, and it didn't. I'll just jump in. I've I've been beating this drum for a little bit, uh, and just to speak to the offensive portion. But there are at, at the very least six center backs better than Brooks and Morado, and just not, most of them weren't called in at all. And so so it's let's, let's do we name them? Yeah, let's go to the heart of this question. Let's name some of them. Yes, I'll, I'll, so. The ones that are on the roster, uh, Omar Gonzalez and Tim Ream. Uh, off the roster, uh, Matt Beasler, Steve Birnbaum, Jeff Cameron. Ooh, I'm missing one. one, one I can't forget about, I, we, we uh, Matt Miazga. That wasn't the one I'm thinking of. I mean, that's one on the list 
but he's a plus. He's, he's a, a he's a potential guy, but he's a plus six. I mean, he's probably good enough, but I would not play Miazga over either Alvarado or Brooks at this point. I think he's okay. being a little overrated uh, in that he plays uh, pretty much anyone for the New York Red Bulls that plays a defensive role and does an adequate job instantly <laughs> becomes above adequate. Um, I'm also now talking about Luis Robles, but yes. um, Miazga at least the potential is there, and if. Klinsman is going to be like, oh, potential uh, is is the key here. Then maybe he should be in the discussion. I mean, it can't go worse than Alvarado. Matt Matt Hedges was the one. Yeah, yeah. another player that just can't get a look in. Yes, um, he should love- definitely be in there over Brooks Alvarado and Miazga. And this ignores the top two voters in the MLS Defender of the Year award last year, both of whom are, are getting up there in age and probably past their yeah, I, I, national I, I, team dates. And, and we're talking right. Chad Marshall and Bobby Boswell. Yes, for, for my list, I, my qualification was definitely young enough to be starters in the 2018 World Cup. Right. Which Boswell and Marshall probably aren't. No, not so much. But, I mean, that's that's just the center back core that's, that yeah, we that's could change. Just the center backs. <laughs> at least six. Maybe eight, maybe ten, who are better. And I mean, that's Jason and that's ignoring one. other guys who are playing abroad, too. So I think, yeah. I think it until you get a a better idea of the, the the talent you can bring in, it's it's hard to say exactly what system they should be playing because you should tailor it to the personnel, which Klinsman doesn't seem to do. He plays yeah. a diamond style midfield with two out and out wingers, which is not how any sane person plays a diamond, except maybe in FIFA if you're playing against a six-year-old. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, yeah, that's I, as I, much as I can give you, Trevor. I'm sorry. I, I guess the thing for me would be to see more... Um, see one system settle on something. Um, the U.S. has switched between... Uh, they've played this diamond a few times. The diamond has been turned flat in many different occasions um, without it necessarily being the plan. It just becomes a necessity that the players appear to figure out on their own. Um, we've seen the, against Jamaica, it was called a 4-2-3-1. It didn't play like one, um, which is not a good sign. If you're telling the players to play a certain formation and then they drift immediately to defend out of a 4-4-2, it says that they're either not listening or you haven't coached them correctly to get them to play the positions correctly. Um, we've seen a 4-3-3. Um, we've seen some good results with that. Um, the 3-5-2 was brought in very briefly against uh, Chile and actually... For half of a game. Yes. A- after it being talked up as the, like, we're going to try weeks, this whole yeah. camp uh, in a uh, to see if a 3-5-2 works, and then it gets ditched after 45 minutes when the last 20 minutes of that, the U.S. was actually starting to sort of figure it out a little... Um, you immediately abandon it. Um, that's the, it, it's the lack of interest in stability, and it's that, yes, a team can always get better, but that doesn't mean you get better by making big changes. You, you can make small changes. You can tweak things in, in practices. Um, you can just watch the team get better by learning how to play next to each other for a while. And if that was the plan with Alvarado and Brooks, um, I, I would have to wonder then why don't why don't we see other combinations elsewhere on the field getting that look? Um, what do we do when Jermaine Jones comes back? Because then the diamond goes out. Does he come back in at center back? Because that's no good. Um, MLS he's shown that he's not an MLS caliber center back, much less a national team quality center back. Um, 
what you know, what do you do with um, Giassi Zardes, who who has played a lot as a forward and scores a lot of goals as a forward? Um, do you keep playing him on the wing because then no. you need to give up the diamond? Um, do you need to then go to a four-two-three-one or a four-three-three or play him as a forward? It has to be one of those. Um, where he's either in a wide forward role, a winger role, or as a striker, but he can't, he can't play in a diamond. Um, all of these things need to be worked out, and the, the players need to actually spend some time in one thing where it's not, all right, we're going to play this, oh, but tomorrow we're going to play a completely different formation that we're trying on the fly. Um, these things take time. It's not one practice session and everyone gets it immediately. Um, there's a reason why club teams stick to a formation for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and it's not because it worked last week. It's because this is the best way to get the best soccer is, is through familiarity. Um, and it seems like every single time we see the national team, it's an unfamiliar look. Um, even when the lineup is the same, it's an unfamiliar use of players. The roles are changed. Um, the expectations are different by more than is reasonable. So I, I guess the first thing I would do, like to, to answer the question, what, what I would do um, in, if in charge without getting into the, the roster issue, is just install something that's stable. Um, figure out the best formation that gets two or three is two or three players deep at every position, and then stick with it for a while. Even if like if if it goes badly in the first game, try it again. Uh, don't just immediately switch to one of the other formations that you have a passing fancy for, um, and, and see if. You, if the players all fit in these these roles and see what happens when they get to play two or three games playing the same role rather than um, moving them back and forth and changing what their responsibilities are from game to game um, and then also leaving them kind of... the it, You almost get the feeling that players understand that they're going to have to do it at, with individual talent rather than as a collective group uh, doing things the right way. And so you see the team needing Dempsey to come up big or relying on Fabian Johnson to be the only creative outlet uh, in, in certain games. Um, you see Bradley having to cover for somebody somewhere because he kno- he knows enough to know that the, everything's going to fall apart if that person doesn't get some support. Um, all of those things are bad. Uh, when, Bradley, when the best player on the team, which is still Bradley in my opinion, has to do so much to help other people, he can't then do what makes him great. Um, it, it means he's a lesser version of himself. That's bad. That that in and of itself is mismanagement, um, much less all the other stuff. So it's a there's a ton of work to be done. Um, I, at this point, one well, I guess one specific thing I would do with the roster is I would no longer call in Timmy Chandler um, <laughs> because at this point yes. he's given. I mean, I was trying to think of this, and I even asked a few people um, over the couple day the last few days. What can you think of a game where Timmy Chandler played well for the U.S. Not just adequately, but actually played well. Actually played like a Bundesliga starter would play in Concacaf, um, and no one could name one. No one could name one where they were like, "No, that was a good game for Chandler." There's always been games where it's like, "Well, he was all right in that one," um, but that's like half of his appearances, and the other half are Chandler was bad in that game. Um, and it, at a certain point, like eight or nine bad appearances out of sixteen or seventeen is too many bad appearances by a lot, and it's time to find somebody else that can play that role. Um, so it's a, it's a weird mix of like guys that are untouchable, and then guys that are like immediately pushed aside and never thought of again. Um, and that's that the whole thing is unstable, basically from top to bottom. The whole national team program just seems erratic, and 
um, ad hoc and unplanned, and that's not how this is supposed to work. Yeah, when you're brought in to remake the entire system top to bottom, maybe maybe he's still in the blowing it up pro- process and hasn't started after, rebuilding after it. After how many years? I mean, yeah. you can only blow something <laughs> after up after so four times. years, yeah. Uh, before it's just a pile of like burnt-up rocks and, and ash. Well, he needs to break it down further into its constituent parts. See, and then to blow, blow up the up. pile of ash and rocks until it's smaller rocks and finer ash. Um, I will say one last thing that, that there's been some some of the reaction to the backlash against this has has been you guys are overreacting to one game that that didn't go well and that happens in tournaments and and it's it's not reacting to one game. There are people like us who have been banging the drum saying Klinsman needs to fix it or get out for a while now. So this isn't just a reaction to the Gold Cup. This is that's the the proximate cause of the conversation. But but there there's been a, a backlash against Klinsman brewing for a while now, and this is just it coming to a head. And so hopefully he he does better going forward. I want to see him succeed. I really do. But I yeah, it's I, it's not like we're we're invested in Klinsman being bad. We want the national team to win games. Yeah. Um, this is just, it's the same thing as if we have people accusing us of being in the tank for a given player on a given team. We just want the team to succeed, um, be it player A or player B or coach A or coach B. We just want the, the team to win games and be as good as they can. Um, so it's not a personal vendetta uh, against Klinsman. It's just that we've had, we have more than enough evidence at this point to say that it's not working. There's not... Uh, linear progress. There's not uh, non-linear progress. There's not <laughs> progress. It's just not happening. Um, and yes, I, I chose those words because Sunil Galati brought them up. Yes. Um, and it, he kind of walked into he kind of walked into another rake, um, sideshow Bob style on that one because there's no good reason to, that that's not what you should be bringing up at this point because there is. Other than the GM side of it, I mean, if, if Klinsman was a GM of a professional team, he'd probably be pretty good. Uh, it seems like he would have a knack for that. Um, but the day-to-day winning soccer games side of it is maybe a problem. And we're not it's not a problem that's about to go away, unfortunately. I'm really surprised we haven't heard anybody spin Gulati's comments as the, the dreaded vote of confidence. I did. I saw, I saw a few notes of that. Um, but I also saw them corrected because it wasn't really a English Premier League style vote of confidence where you get your vote of confidence and then you lose and then you're out. Um, right. It or an NFL style or right. NBA style. Like you see it in every sport where right. where the GM or technical director will say uh, he's got my full backing, and which which means no, he doesn't. Right. It means you know he's about to get fired. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's on he's on a very short leash. No, and, and then maybe that's part of the problem too is that Klinsman knows he's not about to get fired. He's not stupid. He knows that his contract essentially makes him unfireable. U.S. Soccer doesn't want to pay the money to buy his contract out. Um, they've given him all of the power that they possibly could. He, you know, that was his negotiating point when he signed up for the job. Um, maybe he set himself up for that much power the first time around when he was courted before Bradley when he said. I'll only do it with this much power and this much money and blah, 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 and U.S. soccer couldn't make it work then, and maybe that should have been the point where they're like, well, would we really, would we really want to give anyone that much power? Um, yeah. And they should have said, no, no, we shouldn't do that. That's ridiculous. But instead they said, 
let's make sure this time that we guarantee him all of that power that he was so hungry for the last time, and also make sure his contract is financially uh, too burdensome to possibly break out of. You know, sounds like a winning deal to me. Hooray! <laughs> Huzzah! Yeah. Well, well, whatever happens, it sounds like Klinsman will be around for a while, and then, and hopefully he succeeds, and if, if he doesn't succeed as wildly as a head coach, as a manager, as he does as a technical director, then hopefully, eventually, we bring in someone else to manage the, the senior squad and keep Klinsman on as the te- technical director going forward. That seems like the best of all worlds to me. Uh, but but we'll see if we ever get there, or if we're just going to be an ad hoc ruinous side forever. I mean, maybe the Gold Cup, maybe the the brave face Klinsman has put on afterwards. Maybe this will be his. Like I have a few months now to evaluate. I have until October until I have to do anything particularly important with the team. Maybe I need to like come up with a new plan, and you know, it's a plan. It's not just a draw. A, you know, a drawing on a napkin that you're going to stick to today, and then tomorrow you throw it out. Um, maybe this is his, he has a few months now to sort of start over, which is kind of ridiculous to be saying about someone who's been on the job for that long, but it's kind of, it's not completely necessary, but in a lot of categories it is. Um, we need to start over and, and come up with a plan that's going to stick for a while. So I think it's time to talk about something a little more fun. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break, bring Brian Dunseth on, and, and when we come back we will be hashtag drinking with Dunny to preview DC United RSL. Stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. We are now here with Brian Dunsett to help preview DC United's match this weekend against RSL. That'll go down Saturday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time at RFK Stadium. You can watch it on CSN Mid-Atlantic. MLS Live, or if you're out Utah way, you can watch it on KMYU, My Utah TV. Hopefully we'll have some listeners from out there because, like I said, we have Brian Dunseth on the, the show. You know him from his time in the league. You know him as the original winger. You know him from Bumpy Pitch. He's all over the place. Brian, welcome to the show. What's up, guys? How are you? Ah, doing well, doing well, especially after that uh, comeback win this weekend. Dun- <laughs> Three points always makes everyone feel good. It really does. Donnie, I warned you before the show, uh, our, our first question is going to be, what are you drinking? So what are you drinking? <clears throat> right now, I've got my big blue cup. I'm uh, having a Diet Dr. Pepper and vodka after a day at a, a local place called Calabunga Bay. Um, took my two little boys out there and rode water slides all day. So kind of the perfect uh, after drink refresher for the evening. Yeah, sounds like you earned it, too. I did, I did. Chasing around a, a, an almost six-year-old and a three-year-old um, around a, a water slide park is, is definitely uh, any dad's dream, I think, in the big scheme of things. <laughs> Energy-wise, how does that compare to an MLS game? Uh, it's comparable, to be honest with you. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> it, it, pure panic set in two or three times. Um, <laughs> so I was able to keep my kids alive, first and foremost. Um, got banged up because those, uh, those little knots and ridges in the water slides tear up your back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but overall it was, uh, it was a good day, man. U- Utah, Utah for, for being a Cali kid, Utah is, is, uh, surprisingly a pretty solid place to live. All right. Glad to hear it. Uh, let's, let's talk some soccer. RSL, uh, one, two straight now after struggling a little bit early, uh, two, one win over Sporting Kansas City. This weekend, uh, a very hot sporting Kansas City side, I should add. 
they, they've been transitioning into Jeff Gassar's 4-3-3, finally kind of getting away from Jason Kreiss's 4-4-2 diamond that was synonymous with RSL for so long. Have they finally figured it out, or are there still going to be some blips going forward? Um, I think that's it's, you know, it's a heavy question, to be honest with you. Um, I think big picture, the idea behind getting away from kind of that diamond that everyone knows was because, quite honestly, Meg Grababoy, Nap Orchers, Chris Winger, Robbie Finley, um, Sebastian Velasquez, Carlos Salcedo, all those guys left in the offseason. Uh, so immediately you lose over 500 games played in Major League Soccer. DeMar Phillips, Abdullah Mansali at left back. Um, so you had kind of strength, speed, athleticism, whereas previously, Borchardt and Winger had kind of two valuable defensive lines, but didn't necessarily um, have the ability to kind of run and gun with more of the athletic players in the league. Uh, and then, quite frankly, trying to get Kyle Beckman, Javier Morales, Luis Gill, Joao Plata, Olmos Garcia, uh, Sebastian Jaime, all on the field at the same time. So the big news, Dunny, recently was the trade between RSL and, and DC United. We sent Luis Silva your way. RSL sent their all-time leading scorer, Alvaro Sabarillo, back. He scored on his debut. The trade so far has worked out beautifully for, for DC United. Um, I have a couple questions about the trade. The first one is, what made Sabarillo expendable to RSL? Um, uh, that, that's kind of a tough one to get into. Um, I, I think I, I'm here from, to ask the easy questions, really. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I think from RSL's side, um, you know, I talked to, uh, in the last question talking about a transition year in terms of guys like Borchers and Winger and trying to get a little bit younger, um, trying to get a little bit more dynamic. And I think the big picture, um, you know, people also forget is Garth Lagerway going to Seattle. Um, that kind of changed a lot of stuff. And Craig Weibel going from an assistant coach into a technical director role, um, I think coming in recognized that he's got to get a lot younger. Um, and he had kind of unbelievable experience and value in the roster, yet um, a roster that was getting a little bit older. Um, and I think outside the game, Alvaro Sabrio made a decision uh, that was a personal decision that ended up affecting the team dynamic and affecting the group. Um, and I think ultimately, with him being out of contract, uh, kind of sped up the procession of, okay, what, what do we need to do here? Um, how do we try to make this work for both parties? And to Craig Weibel's credit, um, I think it's a valuable trade on both sides for Luis Silva um, every report that has been coming out is his interest in going to Mexico at the end of the season when his contract's up. Um, for Sabo, you know, he's coming kind of towards the end of his international career. Uh, was looking for another big deal in Major League Soccer that probably wasn't going to happen with Real Salt Lake, and it sounds as if uh, it might happen with DC United. Um, so ultimately, it was value for value. Uh, in the short term, Real Salt Lake gets a player that can't help him in Open Cup but can help them in Cup Champions League. Uh, for DC United, they get a, an instant goal scorer, a guy who's familiar with Fabiano Spindola and the way he plays, um, and ultimately, I think, fits in really well with uh, a very veteran-esque uh, leadership inside the locker room um, and uh, a valuable number nine goal scorer, a point striker 
um, that DC United really hasn't had in a long, long time. He's not as dynamic as he used to be, uh, but he's still a very good goal scorer. Um, and I think immediately makes DC a, a better team. Yeah, he showed it this weekend, in fact, with that finish from the Chris Corbs cross. Going yeah. the other way was Luis Silva. Like you said, he's also out of contract after this year. But but in the short term, how does he fit in to Jeff Kassar's, uh system there? Because in D.C., Ben Olsen tried him as an attacking midfielder. And at least here, that wasn't his best position. It was as a, a second forward kind of playing as a foil to Fabiana Spindola or Eddie Johnson or whoever was, else was up top with him. That's not the system that, that RSL play anymore. So how does Luis Silva fit into that lineup? Do you think he's going to spell Morales or, or slot in out wide? Or where do you think he's most likely to see time? Well, I think he's a compliment piece, to be honest with you. Um, I've been a fan of him since he was at UCSB. Um, I thought he was grossly underused in Toronto. Um, I think last year with DC, he kind of showed his quality with those 11 goals. Um, but I mean, listen, if we're being honest, he's a, he's a young player in this league um, that has to figure out his body. Uh, if you can't get through a, what is it, 32, 34-game season in MLS, um, the ups and downs psychologically and physically, uh, the travel, the time change, the altitude change, uh, it's, it's, it's a really hard league, and I don't think people realize how difficult it is to stay 100% fit or as close to 100% as possible. Um, I think he's an insanely talented young man. Uh, I think in the 4-3-3, that actually fits better to kind of his profile, um, to his strengths, because he doesn't have to necessarily be the guy. He can be one of the guys. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I, would, probably, I would probably compare him um, like for like with Luis Gill. Uh, Luis Gill is a player that uh, is insanely talented, um, but yet hasn't figured out, is he a true number 10? Uh, because let's be honest, how many true American number 10s are there really in Major League Soccer? Um, or is he kind of a hybrid where he's not necessarily a two-way player, he's not necessarily an off-the-shoulder striker, uh, a complementary player like you guys re- referenced with Luis? Um, or is he a wide player in a 4-3-3 that likes to invert? I think Silva can play all four of those. I don't think he's a point striker. I think he kind of fit in as, a, as an underneath wide player. Um, but I think the good news for RSL is Luis in a pinch could fit that Javier Morales kind of underneath the point striker with two wide players in a 4-3-3, um, especially with CONCACAF champions right around the corner. But, again, ultimately he's got to get fit. Uh, money's money. Uh, Mexico's Mexico, but the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side of the fence once you get down there. Uh, ask Johnny Bornstein um, how his time has been over the last six years, and I think if he's being honest, he'll say money was great, but it was probably less than ideal. Yeah, well, Luis has a lot of fans out here that are going to be rooting for him out west. Maybe not this weekend, but but <laughs> right. going forward. Jason? Uh, Brian, I guess my first question has to be um, watching RSL play and watching Javier Morales uh, kind of play. I don't want to say out of his mind because that would diminish some of his past achievements, but um, the word with the four three three before the season was people saying at his age, can he keep up the, the running that w- this formation would involve? But uh, we've seen him 
show up. Last week he scored an absurd goal against um, Kansas City, and it seems like that's happening more more often than not. You want you if even if you just watch a highlight package of RSO, you see Morales do something not just impressive, but something that turns into a tangible result for them. Um, what's what, what's the secret there? What's he doing that's that's making this work even at his age and with that the with, with the new uh, and extra defensive responsibility he has in in that setup? Yeah, I, I wish I knew, man, because whatever he's drinking or taking, I need to take it because I'm only four years older than him, and I've been out of the league for like 10 years. It sucks to watch him run around the way he does. Um, Javi's brilliant, man, and, and I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to kind of be a part of national broadcasts and bounce around and, and see a bunch of games as well as obviously being around since 97 uh, in Major League Soccer. I've even been in the league longer since Benny Olsen, which is kind of frightening to think about. Um, I don't have as many gray hairs now as Benny, but I'm also that's one of the reasons why I don't want to be a head coach in this league. Broadcasting um, is good for, for oh, preventing yeah. that. Zero <laughs> accountability. That's the best part about broadcasting. This um, is why we started a podcast. It's actually less right? than zero accountability. It's negative <laughs> accountability. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Javi, I, I don't know what Javi's been doing. Um, outside of, I think, the dislocated ankle in, what was it, 2011 now, uh, mm-hmm. from the from, at Chivas at home um, that I think it was Saturday night after uh, Steve Zakawani's um, double-tip fifth fracture from Brian Mullen. Um, I was there for both of them. And seeing Javi's ankle, um, it's one of those where you're just not sure if he's going to come back. I would actually liken Javi to Christian Jimenez. Um, the first six months that both Argentine number 10s were in MLS, I actually thought they were pretty poor. Um, and then after that, that following season in a full preseason and trying to understand the physicality of the league, um, how to take care of your body, uh, you know, they, they were both so influential and they were goal scorers and, um, assist makers and creators in that final third in ways that very, very few were. Um, Javi, I think coming off the dislocated ankle, realized that he had to change his style um, in a way that wouldn't take away from kind of the genius that is that final ball, but would protect him from the challenges to kind of figure out how to ride out challenges. Um one thing I'll say this weekend, when you watch Javi play, and whoever it is, going to, if it's Perry, uh, if it's Davey, whoever it is, when they close down space, watch the way Javi will manipulate the ball with the outside of his foot, depending on which way, uh, which shoulder the guy's coming from, and he'll actually separate the defender from the ball, and he'll put himself in the middle, and he'll actually kind of jump into the opponent who's defending him and ride the bump and then push away with possession. Um, and he does it time and time again. And it's almost as if, like, the, you know, there, there's very few players in this league in MLS um, that we've seen that the game's kind of slow motion around them. And the way technically they're able to just kind of manipulate the ball away from the defender in these tight spaces. Javier is one of those guys that are in that very, very few category. Um, and, I, and I just think this year he's, He's in a situation where he's got a second-year head coach that is hesitant to not put him on the field game in, game out. Um, but he's also got a desire that 
he's not a he's not a jerk about it. He's not a dick about it. He's one of those guys that says every single day, I know that the end of my career is pretty close. I want to play every single minute I possibly can. And while I have those opportunities, I've seen what a career-ending challenge looks like because I was close to one. So I want to do everything in my power in the games that I have left to be the guy that changes everything. And he does. And he's, he's from the day he got to RSL, he wanted to speak English, even though he didn't know a single word of English. Uh, he learned English in four months. Um, he's brought in every Hispanic player under his wing and really preached day in, day out the importance of them learning English, not only for the locker room, uh, but the importance of settling into a place like Salt Lake City uh, for his family, for the kids, for school, um, for all of that. Um, and he's changed the dynamic, I think, overall, uh, especially for a team that's lost incredible leadership over the last four years from Will Johnson and Fabian and Thomason and Matt and Chris and Nate and all of those guys, um, and Ned Gravavoy. Uh, he's been the guy this year that both he and Kyle had to kind of take everyone by the socks and just say, listen, this is what the expectations are. This is what we hold each other accountable for. Um, and especially because he doesn't have national team commitments in a time like this where Kyle and Nick are gone uh, and they've kind of backed themselves into that corner in MLS. Um, he's been the out-and-out leader. And there's very few teams that have designated players that, that kind of check all the boxes the way Javier checks the boxes. Yeah, it's uh, something we've been familiar with here um, in designated players that maybe don't uh, hit all those marks. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess my my other question um, is uh, watching this last game and watching over the past few weeks, um, Devin Sandoval has been getting plenty of starts, and I know that the, the data that RSL has indicates that when he's on the field, the team scores more goals. Um, but he himself, he's only he's got, I believe, just the one goal. Um, on the yep. year, and when they went to the bench, um, the first sub they made this weekend was to bring in uh, Omes Garcia, play him on the right, and move Sebastian Jaime into the middle, and you end up seeing Garcia wins the penalty kick that wins the game. Um, Jaime, I think, is on four or five goals himself, um, not to mention some Open Cup uh, success as well. Um, what's the, Is the dynamic there more game-to-game um, choosing Sandoval because they want the back-to-goal presence, or is it um, the belief in those numbers saying that even though he's not scoring, we have to keep him on the field for uh, the success the team is having? Uh, well, first, we, we call him Inigo Montoya here in Salt Lake City um, <laughs> because <laughs> if you're a Princess Bride guy, you'll, you'll know exactly right. what that yeah. ball looks like. Um, Charles Barnard is the guy who statistically uh, in Salt Lake for the fans uh, drops these gems, and it is pretty fascinating because – you could also say the same for Abdullah Mansali defensively when he's on the field versus DeMar Phillips. Um, I think the goals against her uh, every 120 minutes versus every 58 minutes, um, which those stat lines are, it's a really fascinating thing to kind of break those numbers down, see those stats. Um, this past weekend in particular, um, it, I think the decision to go with Devin at the point of the attack was because Jordan Allen had pulled up at the end of the last game against Houston with a little bit of a hamstring injury. If Jordan Allen would have been alongside Luke Mulholland, that would have meant Luis Gill would have been on the bench. 
Um, so you would have had a different option to come off the bench. Um, and Sebastian Jaime would have been up top uh, with Olmes on the right-hand side. I think with Jordan unavailable the, and Luis going to be forced into a starting role alongside Luke, Justice Sar and his coaching staff elected to go with Devin because that way bringing Olmes off the bench, you had speed and athleticism, and then you could be a little bit more dynamic in the attack as Sebastian Jaime went to the point. Um, and stats-wise, you're dead on. He, he's, he, I think he's got five in all competition. Um, after not scoring a single goal in pretty much the full 12 months uh, that he was a part of Real Salt Lake since coming over from Chile last summer. Um, so I think Jeff was kind of, Jeff Cassar was kind of hedging his bets as a head coach trying to figure out how can I be good from the start but be even more athletic towards the end. Um, I like that kid, Bofa Sacedo, that came in at the end, Sebastian Sacedo. He's the future um, of RSL alongside Jordan Allen. Um, but I think with kind of the trade of Saborio to you guys in D.C., uh, they've had to alter the substitution pattern, um, alter the front three a little bit more than potentially they'd like. Um, but that gives you a little bit more of in-depth of how the, the thought process was going heading into that last match against Sporting Kansas City. Um, and in particular, the fact that Sporting Kansas City left the Eastern Conference, came to the Western Conference, and Real Salt Lake was able to take seven of nine points from them this year uh, and, and still be out of that playoff picture um, kind of says a lot for this group when they do have some healthy bodies available. And that's an interesting uh, dynamic. Um, United kind of has the opposite thing going on with, with Philadelphia. It's just kind of strange how those things work where – uh, a team that's on the outside of the playoff race has done so well against a very good team. Um, and then at the same time, you'll see other clubs have a bad record against a team that is, you know, one of the worst teams in the league. It's, it's strange. It's, <laughs> it's strange, but it always happens in MLS. There's always those weird situations where it, you look at it and you're like, how is this happening? But it, it always happens. It's, it's all, it's weird how it's, it changes year to year, but it's the same year to year. Yeah, no, I think uh, what people don't talk about, there's a huge like psychological element um, for teams, especially when they go on the road. Uh, and and for like say for Real Salt Lake, for example, uh, up until last season, every time they went to Houston, they got demolished. Uh, and uh, then we last know, year they we finally, know that feeling pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and then they finally go last year and they win. Uh, Sporting Kansas City, outside of of losing the MLS Cup on penalties, has had a pretty good record against Sporting Kansas City. Um, so it, it's MLS is such a weird anomaly where you've got games where you feel like they're going to totally dominate and take three points no matter what, and you just you check the box, and then next thing you know, it's this disaster of a situation where you give up two goals in the first five minutes, and you're like, uh, what in the world is possibly going on right now? Yeah, uh, just to say the least, I mean, we – we do a, a prediction game on our site, and it's just the most maddening thing in the world because uh, <laughs> I, I was complaining to the guys uh, a couple of days ago about how often this season, uh, like a late goal has has completely ruined my prediction. Or on the <laughs> other side, you'll, you'll see one where it's like money in the bank, where it's like Chicago goes to play Vancouver or something where it's like this is clear that this is going to happen. And then, of course – in those moments is when the, the upset happens. You're like, I don't, I don't understand this at all. I, I've watched so much of it. And I still don't understand. 
It's it's MSL, man, Major Soccer League. That's what happens. <laughs> you throw your hands up in the air and you go to the, you go to the fridge and grab a new beer. That's all you can do. Yeah. That that and just stay out of the casinos. Don't don't ever oh, gamble yeah. on MLS. That's yeah. See, how you I, I, I learned that the hard way at the Olympics <laughs> uh, in 2000. I, uh, I Benny Olson and Chris Albright and Landon and I. Every hotel we were at, there was a casino attached in Australia, and so mm-hmm. I. I I, I made four grand in in probably twenty minutes one night, and then I ended up losing four grand in about ten minutes the next night. So I'm like, yeah, gambling's not my thing. <laughs> You're no Charles Barkley. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, all right, Dunny. Last question. Put yourself in Ben Olson's shoes for this weekend. How do you game plan for RSL? What 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 are the big things you have to do to come out with three points if you're DC United? Uh, to be honest with you, I, I really like this matchup. I, I think this is a, a very, very – I think two teams that are very comparable. Um, I don't think D.C. gets the credit they deserve uh, for the way they manage games. Um, and I know you guys are banged up a little bit, and I, I know coming off the the previous game against Philadelphia, um, the first 45 minutes are going to be key. Uh, I, I would say if you can figure out a way to be a little bit overly physical uh, with guys like Javier, if Luis starts, um, you know, Kyle Beckerman's coming back. Uh, if you can physically challenge them in the midfield third, slow them down a little bit, um, look to isolate both outside backs. But kind of the problem is Tony Beltran's been having a career year right back, which I think he deserves that, that all-star nod. Um, Abdullah Mansali is incredibly athletic. Um, and his recovery is just phenomenal. Uh, and if you, if you're listening to this and you didn't see the game, go back and watch his 15 yard recovery sprint on Dom Dwyer inside the 18 yard box because it's just insane. Um, you know, Ramondo is going to be back. Both Ramondo and Beltran are going to be part of the all star team. Um, I don't think if they go with Devin Sandoval, uh, he's going to want to take a clean touch and lay the ball off and look to spin. Uh, Sebastian Jaime is going to try to play the lines and split the center backs. Plata is going to flare out left, but he's also going to look to invert underneath and look for that second ball. Uh, same goes for whoever's on the right-hand side. Um, physicality is the key. you got to defend through possession. So DC, I think, has to look to have a line share of possession and try not to concede simple possession in the midfield because uh, I think the 4-3-3 for Real Salt Lake lends to transition play at speed. Um, and ultimately follow up on shots in the box. That's the one part of the game where Real Salt Lake has struggled this year across the back four is uh, when they do concede shots, uh, if teams follow up and pop up in dangerous spots, um, that's when kind of staying with those runs has is, is been one of the difficulties that they've had. All right, Donnie, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? Uh, well, let's see. Bumpy Pitch at BumpyPitch.com is our clothing line. The original winger is our website. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm Brian Dunseth uh, on Instagram and the orig- or I on Twitter. Gosh, I got way too much stuff going on. Yeah, I was going to say, that, I, that. I, I opened that up to actually be your longest answer of, of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, no, man, I'm just trying to figure out a way to, to earn a living and not wear a suit and not have a real job for the rest of my life. 
Well, you seem to have figured it out. So hopefully you you're, you can be a role model and guys like me can, can follow in your footsteps someday. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Let's grab, let's grab a beer after the game. Let me know where uh, I need to head out after RFK, and uh, I'll meet you guys up. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. All right. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast, at blackandredu for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We accept love letters, hate mail, and, of course, advertising inquiries. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud. Mostly tell a friend or two friends or three friends about us. Tell us Brian Dunseth talked about – tell them Brian Dunseth talked about his gambling time uh, on the show. It's, it's fun, right? It's fun. Uh, for Jason and Ben, and thanking again Brian Dunseth, I'm Adam. We'll talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason. <laughs>